You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. Growing up in a family, as you know, we have three kids. Growing up in a family, there are different... Our Spotify playlist tends to go from one thing to another and we just listen to a certain playlist to death. And then it's done and we never listen to it again. And we move on to another playlist. Right now, right now it's Encanto, right? Anyone else hearing Encanto all hours of the day in their home? That's us. I've heard we don't talk about Bruno a thousand times this week. And you know what? The music isn't bad in it. So I actually don't mind it that much. In a week, ask me again and I'll probably, it will probably become tormented. Um, but it's Encanto this week. Before that uh, was the soundtrack from The Greatest Showman, right? Anyone else have The Greatest Showman? Go, which is a great soundtrack. Uh, but I got thinking in our series this week, if you've ever seen the movie The Greatest Showman, uh, it's all about a man who, who started out with nothing and then, and then had the dream. He had, he had his family... Uh, he was successful. And then that success and that prosperity actually uh, was a threat to what he held most dear, if you've ever seen the movie. And it wasn't his poverty. It wasn't his lack that was his greatest threat. It was his success. And he ends up having to sacrifice that success and, and give it away to somebody else so that he could have what he really wanted in life, which was his family. Similarly, as we go through this series called This is Faith, I think sometimes we, we, we often think that the greatest threat to our faith, we, we talk about this in, as Christians, is, is when we go through trial. You know, when, when we go through loss. When we go through wants. That can be a threat to our faith. And if you think, where is God in all of that trial? Hear me out, though. I think the greatest threat to our faith is the opposite. It's success. Prosperity. When you've got everything you want in life, you're like, why do I even need faith at all? I've, I've got everything that I, I want. I, it's the dream or the Canadian or American dream that takes our focus off of the dream of God for our life. Success, I think, is the greatest threat to our faith. And I don't think that it's any coincidence that the North American church, as we've experienced years of prosperity and success as a culture, as a society, that faith got weaker and weaker and weaker until it just became something you do on Sundays. Because it's not hard. Like you, we just go, on church, go to church on Sundays. I've got everything else that I, that I need in life. And our faith takes a backseat. Do you understand what I'm saying here? I think the greatest threat to our faith is prosperity. In fact, many people wrongfully follow God, thinking that it will bring them the prosperity that they seek, but really they don't want God. They want prosperity. They don't want God's dream for their life. They want their own dream. This is faith. Colin preached last week. Uh, I'm going to have to pour this water. My mouth is dry. 
Colin preached a great message, and I would encourage you to listen to it uh, last week. It's on YouTube, uh, all about Abram. He fails in Egypt, which we'll get to in a second, in a few weeks, because he fails again miserably. But he ends up going back to this place called the Oaks at Mamre. It's the place where he settled. It's the place where he had contentment. And it was almost like a restart for him. And he came, comes back to the place where God speaks to him. It's a great message, so make sure you check it out if you haven't heard it. <laughs> and you think, okay, this is a restart. Now, I, now I'm in a controlled environment and my faith is going to go well for me. I've recovered from my failure. I've now shown great faith when it comes to the decision with my nephew Lot. He went this way, I went this way, and God has promised that he, I would still be blessed in the land that I, that I am. Here's the point, though, as you read through this series over and over and over again. Faith is not lived in a controlled environment. Abram, doing nothing wrong in and of himself, he's just hanging out at the oaks. Like I would, like I told you a couple weeks ago, I'm a tree guy. I love trees. I'd be hanging out under the oak tree. That would be where I am. I'm just content with life. I'm not going to bother anybody. This is where I'm going to live out my faith. And even though Abram Abram doesn't do anything wrong, he gets caught up in the affairs of the world. Faith isn't lived in a controlled environment. We may try to control our homes, keep the world out, control our kids, keep the world out of our kids. It's not how faith is lived. Faith is lived in this context of chaos in our world. You think the people in the Ukraine wanted to go through what they're going through right now? Where now the wars of the world of leaders... Nothing to do with ordinary Christian civilians. You think, well, yeah, I, just, I, thought, I, I thought I could just keep my family safe and secure, and now having nothing to do with me, they get caught up in the chaos of the world, and it's there that our faith is lived out. I forgot my phone again, didn't I, Jared? Can, can, you, can you give me my phone? This is the second time in a row that I have something on my phone I meant to read, and, and uh, I forgot it. Thank you. Uh, Jared, uh, who is part of our church, of course, he works for a company, uh, organization called Open Doors. I wanted to give you a little quote. Uh, this is a quote is from the weeks leading up to the invasion. This is from, uh, uh, he, uh, I, I won't even try to pronounce his name, but he's the president of the Ukrainian Baptist Theological Seminary. And this is the attitude of Christians in the Ukraine. Churches already agreed. Those that are on the western part of the Ukraine, which is along the border of Russia where, where the attacks are happening, told our brothers and sisters in other parts of the Ukraine closer to Russia that if something happens, we will open our homes and our churches to you. You have to understand that historically we, we had that experience before under the Soviet Union. So the church did not forget what, it, what does it mean to be persecuted, and I think that we will rearrange, reorganize, and still do what we always do. Still preach the gospel. It doesn't change. That's where faith is lived out in a very uncontrolled, chaotic context. You can't avoid life's chaos. It will come to your door as much as you might try to avoid it. It comes to Abram's door, and we're going to get there in a second in this passage. Faith doesn't avoid chaos. It dictates how we respond to the chaos. Let me say that again. Faith does not avoid 
chaos. Our faith dictates how we respond when chaos inevitably shows up at our door. If, if it was just a controlled environment, it would cease to be faith. If you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 14 is where we're going to be today. So either on your phone or on, or on a written copy of God's Word, Genesis 14. That's where we'll be. I'm going to do something a little bit differently. Because this is a long, well, not, it's not even a long chapter, but I'm going through the whole chapter to understand what's, what's actually going on. There's something very profound going on. And I think we'll just miss it if we just read it through. So I'm going to read the first half of this passage up to verse 17. I'm going to kind of read and then make comments. I think that's the best way of doing this, rather than read it and then try to explain it, because you'll just lose it. There's a whole bunch of names and places that if you want to do more research, okay, or you can ask Colin afterwards about all of his historical knowledge in, in patriarchal history in, in the Middle East, I'm sure he'll give that to you. Uh, or if I've pronounced anything wrong, which I will in a second. There's a lot of names, a lot of places. I'm just going to make some comments as we go through to kind of help you, help us understand what's going on in this passage and why it's even here, right? The first part of this passage is going to sound like a history book. It's going to sound like the Silmarillion written by uh, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, right? It's going to sound like this, this person does battle against this person, this person, and you're like, what is going on? Which I've never read the Silmarillion. I'm not, that, I'm not that much into Tolkien. Verse 1 to 4 says this in Genesis 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, that's one king, Arioch, king of Elisar, that's two kings, Kedorleomer, I think I got that right, king of Elam, three kings, entitled king of Goyim, fourth king. So we have four kings from the east, what, they, what believed to be in What's, what's now modern-day Iran, but ancient Babylon, before it was even called Babylon. It's four kings. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom. That's the first king. Bersha, king of Gomorrah, second king. Shinab, king of Adma, third king. Shemeber, king of Zeboim, fourth king. And the king of Bela, or that is Zor. Poor fifth king, he doesn't get a name. Sorry. Sorry, fifth king. You're not that important, apparently. You don't get a name. Zor was another word for the place, Bella. So he, we don't actually know the fifth king's name. He's the runt of the kings. So there's four kings who makes, make war against five kings. Those four kings were from, like I say, in the Babylonian area before it was even Babylon. These five kings were from Canaan, which is modern-day Israel, which is where Abram is. Let me continue. Verse 3, and all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. Twelve years they'd served Kedor Laomer, who was the head honcho of the four kings from the east. Twelve years they served Kedor Laomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Likely what that means is they, for twelve years, had paid tribute to the kings, these major kings of the east. And finally they said, forget it, we're not under your control anymore, we don't want to pay you tribute, we want to be our own nation as kings of Canaan. Follow me so far? So they said, forget it, we're not under your control. Now you have to remember here as well, this is like 
this is like prehistory people, even like Israel, pre-Israel. There's, there's not really nations at this time, maybe Egypt. These are what are called city-states. So you'd have a, a father who had a whole bunch of kids, and then they would have kids, and they would have kids, and they would have kids. These are like large families, more than they are nations, okay? So when you think of armies, don't think of like gladiator and Roman armies and Greek armies and all of those things. These are, these are more like not hundreds of thousands of armies. These are more like tens or hundreds of, of armies. Verse 5 to 7. In the 14th year, and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. And then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in the Hazazon Tamar. Why is all of that in there? It's just kind of like off the cuff. This is what Kedor Laomer did and his three buddies who came in to assist him. I think the point of why it's in there, because it just sounds kind of like a history book. It's to, it's to illustrate that Kedor Laomer was the power of the, in the area at that time. Just out of spite to go do battle against these five kings who had rebelled against him from the east along the way. He's just like, I'm going to ransack this city and ransack that city and ransack this city because I can. I'm powerful enough to do it. And he does it. Defeats all of them on the way. He is... This is why it's in there. It's to illustrate that Kedor Laomer is a powerful, warmongering individual who gets drunk on his own power. And unfortunately, through the history of mankind, this is our history, is men rise to power and they get drunk on their own power and they just, they, they defeat people because they can. They just want more power to show how much power they have. It's our history since Adam. It's a never-ending, very depressing cycle which continues to this day. Verses 8 to 12. So you understand the history. Kedor Laomer, powerful, warmongering individual. Then the king of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that's the five kings from Canaan, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim, which is the Dead Sea, with Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, this is the four kings, Tidal, Amraphel, Arioch, the four kings against five. They're doing battle. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. It's not certain what that was, likely tar pits, which made it difficult to fight. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, so assuming they, it was a wash, the four kings from the east came and just wiped them out. They fled. Some fell into them, the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. That's the first 11 chapters. Sounds very history book-ish. You're like, why is it even in the Bible? What does it have to do with anything? You know, there's been wars and battles throughout history. Why is this now in there? The battle between four kings against five... The four kings from the east, it was a wash. Here's why. In verse 12, here's the dun-dun-dun in the passage. They also took Lot. Oh, Lot, who 
foolishly was dwelling in the city of Sodom, as, as Colin mentioned last week. The son of Abram's brother, who was his nephew, dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Well, that's why it's there. So now we have the nephew of Abram gets carried away by a powerful, warmongering lord. Abram, who is living in peace, think, I'm just going to live out my faith under the oak trees. Keep my family safe. I'm going to control the environment around me. Now all of a sudden gets caught up in the affairs of the world and the chaos that's going on. Abraham, living in peace, gets caught up in a global drama. And Lot is becoming a bit of a problem. You know what I mean? He's becoming a bit of a problem. Which means you can't control the affairs of the world. Also, you can't control your own family. Right? If Lot, Lot's his family, you can't do anything about it. And now, it's, now he's caught up in this affair. Lot is becoming a problem. Maybe you're thinking the same thing. Man, I can't control my family. I keep getting caught up in some problems. That's not the point of this narrative, though. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, that's our, that's our, that's our man, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol. So he's got some allies with him. These were the allies of Abram. Verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So he goes to rescue Lot, his nephew, 318 trained fighters. It's a respectable army, but still would have been dwarfed by the armies of the four kings from the east. Verse 15. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. He brings back all the possessions, brought back his kinsmen, brought back Lot, his wife, and all of the people and servants and animals, everything that the kings of the east had taken. The plan was in verse 15, we're going to split up, we're going to go by night and strike while the enemy is still indulging in the spoils. And it's almost striking. It's like a little footnote at the end. Oh yeah, he wins against the most powerful man in the area. He defeats them in like two words and is done. And he, he's a hero. You think this is, this is a Hollywood-esque type drama. You know, this, this global conflict. Lot gets cu- caught up in it. Abram goes and takes men. He's men, men, well, let's go rescue our family. And he does. And he wins. And he's a hero. And you think that in the Bible it should be Abram is a hero. It's incredible what he has just done. He's just defeated the most powerful, warmongering lord in the land. And all you get is like a footnote. He defeats them and he brings them all back. It's, it's weird. It's like all of that build up to like troubling, broad speaking, like there's no detail. It seems so anticlimactic. A drama full of intrigue, courage, loss, and victory is summarized in a couple of words. He goes down, he defeats no biggie. But it was. It was a huge deal. Your nephew, your family's been taken by a tyrant, and if you were in your seat, you gotta put yourself in Abram's shoes. Your nephew's been taken by a warmongerer, been taken captive, and he... Now you're bringing a person who's not even a player on the scene to stand up to a powerful tyrant. 
He had held Canaan captive for 15 years. And in one, two words, like he defeats them. It's like woefully few details. It's weird. <laughs> Even weirder, the last half of the chapter focuses on a conversation. And goes into detail about bread and wine and words that are spoken, and in like one verse, Abram gets, he defeats them, risks his, he doesn't even say he risks his life, or like all of the, this is the battle of Helm's Deep, it should be an hour and a half long, but he gets nothing. The narrative goes from this 10,000 foot view to zooming into a conversation between three people, and I think the point is this, all that is set up to say this, The harder battle for Abram actually begins. He just risks his life, physically speaking, against a warmongering tyrant. And now the harder battle begins. Because the battle is not one of soldiers, not one of kings, not one of swords or formations. The battle is up for his faith. And that's the point. Verse 17 to 24. Let me just read this, and then I'll make some comments. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer... And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth or a tithe of everything, including his own things. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, which means he have taken an oath, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten. So the people that are with me, the allies that are with me, take their share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Ashkel, and Mamre take their share. But for me, I don't want any of it. I get nothing out of this deal. It's such a weird story. Here's what I think is going on, because I can't take much time. The real battle for Abram begins. Because in this conversation between three people, Abram, the hero of the story, there's this king of Sodom who is in his lowest... He's he's been defeated. He's He's got no power in the situation. And this weird, strange, enigmatic figure named Melchizedek, who's wasn't even a part of the fighting to begin with. A conversation between three people. Here's what's going on. The harder battle for Abram begins because the threat was not swords or spears. It was success and prosperity. All Abram has to do is claim what is his. And he becomes the most powerful person in the land. He's just defeated the most powerful person in the land. Success and prosperity is at his doorstep. I don't have to hang out at the oaks of Mamre. I can have what these kings have, even more so. All of the riches of that land and slaves and power and everything was in his grasp. It was right there for him to take. Sodom said... Sodom offered, the king of Sodom offers him some things, but Abram could say, nope, I make the terms. You don't bargain with me. I'm the hero of the story. I'm, I, I set your terms. I'm going to take it all. You're not a very good king anyway. I could be a better one. It's right there in his hands. 
Abram gets to make the rules. You see what's happening? Abram's test is whether to hold on to the vision that God had given him from Genesis 12. That through you I will bless the entire world. Or he can have something right now. Something that no one else can have, only him. Everything that anyone would ever want. Think about it. What I think all of that detail about Kedor Laomer, Abram could be the next one. He could be the Kedor Laomer. And have all these other kings serve him. I got nine kings under my control now. It's all right there in front of him. He could sacrifice the dream of faith to have it all right now. It's a shortcut to blessing, to pleasure, to have anything you've ever wanted. How many fathers have sacrificed what is their responsibility to chase a dream that was at their doorstep? How many parents, how many marriages have split up because they sacrificed their responsibility to have a dream that showed up at their doorstep? How many pastors began with a good heart? How many pastors planted a church beginning to see, I want to see what God's going to do, but they were so filled with their own success that they became a tyrant. Even in your own faith, how many of you started out wanting God to do big things in your life, and then when the success and prosperity of life comes knocking at your door, your faith diminishes. I know talking to some of our leaders here at the church, one of the concerns when it comes to Canadian Christianity is people begin life or they, they, they get into their 20s and 30s with so much vigor about their faith. And then once, they, once life hits and the responsibilities and the successes and money hits, faith diminishes. Now you're in your 50s and church is just something you do on Sundays. You don't really want what God wants for you. You've already got what you want in life. This is the test of faith for Abram. And it's not coming from trial, it's coming from prosperity. You know, Satan leads Jesus to the top of a very tall building, has him look out, say, all of this can be yours. Remember that story, if you remember? Satan says to Jesus, all of this can be yours as long as you do business with me. For Abram, it's the same thing. All of this can be yours as long as you do business with these other kings. It's the greatest threat to your faith. It's not from deficit, but getting what you want. It's part of the issue with our Canadian church. Prosperity, if not careful, can dull our faith. And that dream, the Canadian or American dream, can distract us from the dream of God for our life. Man, this can happen so subtly. I mean, last week, it feels like every, I mean, something goes wrong every single week. One of you called me this week and you're like, Aaron, I'm concerned about you because you're caring too much about things that don't matter, like a live stream and how good the live stream is. See what I'm saying here? Like there's a test of faith to enjoy and discover what God is going to do in our midst, and you're distracted by 
success, whether everything goes smoothly. When that happens, impatience, discontentment, a lack of joy because your desire for God subtly shifts shifts to something of your own creation. And it's the people close to you that can tell. This person said to me, Aaron, I can tell by just how how you talk to people. You're rushed. You don't focus. You don't pay attention to what they're saying when you're distracted by your own dream and not God's. You know that hit me? I was like, yeah, you're right. It's the test of faith. This person also just said, I gave them permission. Anyone sees that for me too? Give permission to be like, Aaron, just calm down, okay? Calm down. No one cares about this as much as you do, so calm down. It's the test of faith. Every time it's the evil one saying to you, you can have what you want if you do business with me. <laughs> That's what the king of Sodom represents in this conversation. There's another figure, though, and I gotta, I'm not going to nearly be able to give enough attention to this figure, but I'll do the best I can with as little time as I have. There's another in this circle, in this conversation, whose name is Melchizedek. Very enigmatic, mysterious figure. Was part of Jewish lore throughout history because so little is said of him. There's more said of him in reflection in the New Testament than is said, like, this is it. This is all of Melchizedek. We don't really know anything about him. We don't, we don't know if he had any, like, who his parents are, what his reign, how long his reign was, whether he lit, like, when he lived, when he died. We don't know anything about him. He's this very mysterious figure that appears. He's the king and priest, it says, of the Most High in Salem, which was before Jerusalem was established, but in the same area. He brings a feast out, speaks a blessing over Abram. Abram strangely gives a tithe to this man, who we know nothing about. Gives a tenth of everything he's got of his own. (laughs) It's just weird. Like, to the broad battles where it's like, Abraham rides down, risks his life, and he's, he wins. He's a hero. Big deal. But now it's like giving details like he brings out bread and wine. The mystery of this man where no details are told. He's mentioned again in Psalm 110 and then throughout Hebrews, book of Hebrews if you want to go thereafter. Now here's, I can't, I can't get into this too much. While I don't believe he is the pre-incarnate Christ, and I, disagree, and I will disagree probably with some of you. I do believe he's a type of Christ. He foreshadows who Jesus represents to us in his dealings with Abraham or Abram. He represents the Genesis 12 blessing that only comes by faith. He represents Jesus for us. The one who ultimately comes to bring blessing to all the world through faith in him. Here's what happens. In this interaction, we see how Abram, he doesn't sell out on another dream. The game, the the world affairs with other kings, he sticks to his dream of faith and does business, not with Sodom, but with Melchizedek. And I think what we can learn a few things. This is what faith does for us. Or this is what it looks like to retain faith even amongst successes in life. 
Here's what Melchizedek does. First one. He reminds Abram of God's deliverance. The words that he speaks to Abram, he reminds him of God's deliverance. Verse 20, it says, Blessed be God most high, this is from Melchizedek, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Yes, Abram is the benefactor, but God's the one who did it. I mean, it's 318 trained men against an, against an empire. God is the one who did it. So you can't take credit for it, Abram. God did this. I mean, praise the Lord. You're the benefactor. You're the blessing of that. You get to, you get to have the blessing, but God is the one who did it. Don't forget it. Those are the words spoken to him. So when you go through successes and prosperity, one of the best things that can happen to you is to remind yourself or to have people surround you to remind you, hey, Brian, hey, Will, God is the one who, gave, who has given that to you. Don't take credit for your successes. God is the one who gave it to you. Abram's the benefactor, but it's clear who is responsible. There's, not word, there's no words of flattery, no trade deals, but of the most important thing, God did this. And if we don't constantly hear that God has done this, God has done this, God has done this for you, our faith will subtly start to shift. Secondly is this, and I'm going to go more into detail on this in a second. Secondly is this, how you keep faith uh, in the threat of success or prosperity. First, remind, a reminder of God's deliverance. Secondly, there's intentional inferiority. Abram, who could have it all, who could be the most powerful person on the earth, does the strangest things and submits himself to another person who had nothing to do with the battle. This man named Melchizedek. He could become Kedor Laomer, but he purposely submits himself to another person. A tithe, as it says in Hebrews, the one who tithes puts themselves under the one who they tithe to. That's the point of tithing. There's an intentional submission to someone else above you. Abram, with the prospect of becoming the most powerful player on the scene, submits himself. We don't like the word submission in our day, but it's necessary for our faith because every prosperity, every success that we go through in life, we need someone that we are submitting ourselves to, ultimately, which I'm going to get to, ultimately Jesus. So the second one is intentional, uh, uh, intentional, sorry, what's the word? Intentional inferiority. Thirdly is this, generosity that hurts. It says this, blessed be Abram by God most high, who is the possessor. That's not talking about Abram. That's talking about God most high. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. And then again, Abram says, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God most high. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. There's generosity that hurts because God is the possessor. Abram is free to give away everything that could have rightfully been his. It's God's. It's not mine. It's not mine to wield. How many of you in your life, like, this is my money. I've earned it. I can do what I want with it. That's not what the Bible says. It's God's money that he's given to you for his purposes. Abram refuses to gain from this deal. He refuses to leverage this situation. We use that a lot as Christians. Like, leverage the situation. He refuses to leverage the situation. God, it's your money. You are the possessor of heaven and earth. 
When God causes prosperity, one of the greatest acts of faith we can do is not to hoard it. It's to give it away. When God brings blessing to your life, what will help you retain faith is not to keep it all yourself. We see that again in Luke chapter 2. When God brings blessing to the farmer, he foolishly puts it all up in silos for himself and doesn't give any of it away. This is super important. Those of you who have been blessed this year, one of the best ways you can do to retain your faith is give some of it away. There's a church that I know that uh, was given a whole bunch of, whole bunch of money. They, they thought, you know, this is something that God uh, 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 wants to do in our, in, our, in our church. You know, this is something we need. But they were given more than what they needed. And I respected so much because they only used what they needed, what they believed God was going to do, and they gave the rest of it away. They didn't hoard it. I got to move on because we're almost done. Fourthly, and most importantly, how to retain your faith, a stubborn longing not to build your own kingdom, but to build the kingdom of God. A generosity that hurts, an intentional inferiority or submission, a stubborn longing for the kingdom of God to be built, not your own. This could have been his, but he says no. He raises his hand as an oath. He says, I will not take from you what you're offering me so that you can't say, I made this man. And I believe what Abram is saying is, I'm so, I am so stubborn to see what God's going to do in my life. I'm so stubborn to see Genesis 12 happen that it's going to be God who brings this blessing, not you. Hebrews 7 and 8, which I can't go into detail that much, basically is comparing Jesus with this line of Melchizedek. He takes after this man named Melchizedek, and the comparison is that the people of God throughout history, they were given a law and they were given a priesthood under what's called the Levites. They were given a priesthood under the Levites, and it says in Hebrews that that priesthood was merely a shadow. It wasn't the fulfillment of the dream of God in Genesis 12. It was merely a shadow. Levite religiosity and the law were never the point. You can create a religious kingdom to try to control your environment, but it only creates things like Pharisaism, It only creates Christian nations that don't actually want Jesus. It only creates people who live the right way or who who respect Christian ethic but is not in the presence of God. That's the danger of Christian nationalism. It's to create a system where there's a respect for religion but you, you don't actually know God. In Hebrews it says, Abram through his loins represents Levi because Levi would come through him who is imperfect and unable to save himself. Just as in this story. Abram, it's all right in front of you. You could take it, but you're imperfect and you can't save yourself. No matter how hard you try to bring the Genesis 12 blessing, you can't. Just to establish some religious community, you will fail. You try to control your environment. The problem is you're a sinner too. If you try to take power, you will become the next Kedor Laomer. Because you're a sinner just like he is. 
You need forgiveness too. You need to be saved too. And if Abraham takes the bait, he becomes the next tyrant. We fool ourselves into those kind of shadows. The point of Hebrews is this. Jesus is better than all of that. Jesus is better than all of that. When Abram offers a tithe to this man Melchizedek, he's saying, your way is better. You're the one who can save. You're the one who can take me into the presence of God. That's why Jesus is better. I can't, but Jesus can. And it's faith in this priest and king and a longing to see Jesus as king. Not Aaron to lead Canada into the next prosperous season. It's to see Jesus as king. And so Abram accepts bread and wine, which is a foreshadowing of things to come. He accepts Melchizedek, who was a foreshadowing of a greater person to come. He accepts a feast and sits down at his table to sit down with this king, accept his blessing, accept his salvation, to do business with him, not one who could bring him prestige, but one who could bring, into, bring him into the very presence of God. This is what we do every time we sit at the table and take communion. We are welcoming Jesus to say, I'm going to do business with you. It's not what I want in this world. It's what you want in this world. It's not about my kingdom. No matter how much you bless me, I am unable to save. It's about you. The communion table, it says in 1 Corinthians, not only is, or in the book of Luke, sorry, not only is it a time to look back at what Jesus has done, it's a time to look forward when we see the kingdom of God manifested in this world when we sit down with Jesus at his table and say, you've done it. You've done it. All of these dreams have come true.